As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love, so please teach us your statutes. You have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word, and so we pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see Jesus by his spirit, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 12 at verse 35. You'll find that on page 1080 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And we want to turn together to uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 35, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter and consider what God's word has to say to his people. So Mark chapter 12, beginning our reading at verse 35, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples, his, he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, In Mark's gospel, he's been telling us the story for a long time of Jesus' public teaching ministry, and here in this passage, his ministry really comes to an end. The public teaching ministry of Jesus, as Mark tells the story, is coming to an end here. There will be more teaching for his disciples in the next chapter, but it will be primarily targeted for them to teach them about the things that will be, and then the story will move on to Christ's suffering and death Um, and resurrection. And so this is really the end of Jesus' public teaching ministry, and we've been considering it in the context of these conflict narratives that Jesus has been having ever since he came to Jerusalem with the religious authorities. They keep coming into conflict over questions that have been raised and tests that have been put before him by the religious establishment. And here at the end of Jesus' ministry, he turns on them and asks them a question. Um, Ask them a question that other Gospels tell us they were unable to answer. Uh, Their silence here is notable as well. Um, But this is a question that Jesus confronts them with. And so his ministry really ends with him coming back with a question that they can't answer, an important question about Messiah, about the Christ. Um, And then he turns to expose them for the kinds of people that they are, 
and then expose the devotion of this widow who comes and gives an offering. And so Mark has connected these stories that might not seem to be connected sort of thematically. Uh, Jesus talks about how the scribes don't understand the scriptures. He then talks about the scribes and their hypocrisy. And part of their hypocrisy is devouring widows' houses. And then there is a widow who makes a contribution. So by these themes, these stories hang together in Mark's telling. Um, And so what do we see here at the end of Jesus' public ministry, his teaching ministry to the people? We see really scripture explained. We see sin exposed. And we see sacrifice exalted, and that's how we want to think of this passage together. Scripture explained, sin exposed, and sacrifice exalted. Um, Jesus responds to uh, all these questions that have been put to him with a question of his own. Um, And commentators pointed out that unlike the trifling questions or the testing questions that have been put to Jesus, Jesus puts a question to them, announces a question that really touches on some of the most important matters of theology that can be touched on. Jesus doesn't waste his time with the kind of trifling and legal squabbling that the scribes and the religious leaders bring up. He's not asking questions about hand washing or other kinds of things like that. Jesus is talking about the things that are important in the kingdom, things that are of real moment in the kingdom, like what Messiah comes to do. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? What is his mission as he comes into the world. Those are the natures of the questions that Jesus puts to the scribes in front of the whole crowd. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Verse 35. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Um, If we really want to understand what Jesus' questions here are driving at, um, we have to understand what the scribes thought about the mission of Christ, about the mission of the Messiah, so that we can understand really the critique that Jesus is making in these questions. So what did the scribes think? What did they teach and think about Messiah and what he was coming to do? They thought that he was going to come and be an earthly political king like David was. That he was coming principally to lead God's people in triumph over their earthly political enemies and to reestablish Israel as it was. The Israel that had its own sovereignty, that had its own autonomy, that lived under the government of its king. And that the king would come and he would reign on David's throne and he would expand the kingdom beyond the bounds that Israel ever existed in before. So Messiah would be a greater king in that sense than David was. His kingdom would be expanded, but he would still be principally like the kings in the Old Testament who were ruling over a political realm, a political kingdom in this world. And that's what they were hoping for. Someone in their context who would come and expel the Romans who were over them, and reestablish the autonomy of God's kingdom in this world. That's what they were looking for. And that's how they understood the fulfillment of the promise that had been made to David. You might remember in 2 Samuel 7, David decided he was going to build a temple for God. God had given him rest all around. And David had said, it's not right that I live in this great palace, but God's ark dwells in a tent. I want to make a house for God. And God comes to David and said, did I ever ask for anyone to build me a house? Do I need a house to live in? Um, And God, in his wonderful way, comes to David and says, you know what? I don't actually need a house. I don't need you to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom where you will always have a son to sit on my throne. Um, And if he transgresses my commands, I'll punish him, but my love will never depart from him the way my love departed from Saul. 
Um, and he, his throne will be established forever. That was the promise that God had made. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Um, And, of course, this teaching, this promise, this covenant that God made with David is referenced many times in the prophets. Many of the prophets expand that promise and talk more about it. Uh, Around Christmas time, we often think about the promises that that Isaiah recounted in Isaiah 9 about the son who would be born, the government would be on his shoulders. Lots of the other prophets talked about this son of David that would come, uh, this Christ, this Messiah they were looking for. Isaiah talked about it, Jeremiah talked about it, Ezekiel did, Hosea, Amos And just to give one example of that from Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6, he prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness." And so as they understood the promise that was made to David, and as they looked at all of these amplifications of that promise and clarification of that promise throughout the prophets, they were looking for a Messiah, a Christ, who would come into the world and who would reign on the throne like David and be a king like David and give his people peace in this world like David did. And Jesus comes and is questioning that and saying, are they right in how they're interpreting the scriptures? Are they right that that's the kind of king that is promised? Is that the kind of king this son of David will be? Is that what we're to expect? Um, And of course, what Jesus comes and says is, no, that's not what God has taught us to expect. That's not what God has called us to think of this king who is coming. Because if that's the case, then why would David himself call him Lord? What sense does that make? If this king is just going to be another king, then how come David himself, prophesying in the spirit, doesn't call him that kind of king? Why does he say of him what he says in Psalm 110? That's what Jesus is really doing by raising this quotation from Psalm 110, is is pointing us to David's words And saying these were not just the words of David. David was in the spirit when he spoke these things. He was acting as a prophet. He was saying, thus says the Lord. And so if this king to come is just going to be a king like David, then why does David speak of him as someone who is completely in a superior position to himself? Um, Lord is used twice in that quotation of Psalm 110, but it's important for us to understand that the first use of Lord is the divine name. Yahweh says, to my Lord, to my Adonai, my master. So Jesus is saying, you know, David as a prophet said, Yahweh said to my master, my Lord. And so David was pointing to the fact that this person is supreme to him. Superior to him in every way. He's a superior person that David refers to as his Lord, as his master. And Jesus' question is really, if this guy was just David's son, a king like David, why wouldn't this son call David Lord? Why would David call him Lord? And Jesus goes on to quote from Psalm 110 to say, David said that about him because the position 
that this king would be given is a supreme position and a position far beyond that which David ever held. Because to this one that David calls Lord, Yahweh says, sit down at my right hand. In other words, take your seat of power at my right hand. Rule at my right hand. Uh, We know from the scriptures that to be at the right hand of power is to hold the supreme position of power. Right Under Yahweh, this is his king. This is the kingdom that he will be given. This is not just a high place, it's the highest place that can be given. The highest place of rule and authority. Jesus is saying to the scribes, this is what David said he would be. David said this is the king who would reign at the right hand of Messiah, who would not just have power over an earthly political kingdom, but who would be given all authority in heaven and on earth, who would be king over all and would be blessed forever as that king. Um, it's, It's power far beyond what David ever had, and it promised a victory that David never delivered. David brought the kingdom to peace from the enemies all around, but the enemies all around were still there. The Lord just gave him dominion over the enemies, but they weren't completely destroyed. Jesus saying Psalm 110 promised that they would be completely destroyed, that all the enemies would not just be defeated so God's people could live at peace, but all those enemies would be put under the feet of the Messiah. There was a complete victory that Messiah would bring in this world. As one commentator put it, this taught that Messiah would be a kingdom, with a king whose kingdom will remain invincible to every attack until the whole multitude of his enemies will be laid low. His power will remain forever unimpaired. That's what the glory of what the Holy Spirit would go on to say, not through David, but through Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, to talk about that last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death. And at the great resurrection, when Christ raises all of his people from the dead, then the kingdom will be finally delivered over into the hands of his father, a completed kingdom where he has done what his father has called him to do. He will deliver over a kingdom that's full of subjects who are saved and raised and righteous. And he will deliver to his father a realm that he has driven all sin out of and made a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the kingdom Messiah comes to make. That's the kingdom that will be delivered over to his father, a king that will be completely victorious over his kingdom and drive everything wicked out of it. He will be exalted as king, the king who has saved his people, the king who has dominion over the heavens and the earth. And David is saying, how do you reconcile Psalm 110? If your Messiah is just going to be an earthly king over Israel, how do you understand Psalm 110? How do you make sense of what David says? And of course, what Jesus is really saying to the scribes is you have not listened. You've seen the king you want to have, not the king that God has promised. You have not listened to David when he prophesied. You have not listened to the Holy Spirit. You fundamentally misunderstand the glory of what the Messiah and the Christ comes to do. You fundamentally missed what the scriptures 
have said. Um, in a wonderful way, Jesus says, your Messiah is way too small. Your Messiah is way too small. God has promised to do much more than you think and much more than you can imagine. As another person put it, Messiah comes as one whose role is not to restore the earth or the, on earth the Davidic kingdom or the sovereignty of Israel. He does not simply extend the work of David, but comes to establish a wholly different kingdom, the throne of which is situated at God's right hand. The Christ who's promised in the scripture comes not just to defeat earthly political enemies. He comes to defeat the devil's whole dominion and to destroy it. That's what Christ comes to do. And this is so important that the mission of Christ be properly understood because the Christ is here in the person of Jesus Christ and he's about to do what's necessary to secure the victory of the kingdom. He's soon going to go to the cross, which is where he will die on the cross and win the victory of the kingdom. And he's going to rise from the dead, where he will be crowned king over all. Um, and then he will ascend to heaven so that God's people will see that he goes to take up his seat on the throne. And then he will pour out his spirit in evidence that he is sitting and he is ruling and he is reigning. And that he will be there governing us by his word and spirit, defending us and preserving us in the salvation he has won for us forever until he comes again in glory to make all things new. If you don't understand who he is, you don't understand what Jesus has come to do. Jesus says, how do you make sense of Psalm 110? Give me your explanation. And the implication here is they have nothing to say. There is no explanation they can give. Other gospels tell us that after he asked them this question, they stopped asking him questions. And notice how the crowd reacts all around. We're not told of how the scribes react to what Jesus has said, but we are told how the crowd reacted. Um, how did the crowd react at this news of who Messiah would be, this revelation of Scripture properly explained to them? We're told the great, the great throng heard him gladly. Probably part of that gladness was just seeing these scribes be put in their place and shut up for a minute. Um, but I think the rest of it was to get that vision of who Christ comes to be, to recognize that that's the kind of king who has come. Um, and the crowd, whether they fully understood the good news that they were hearing, still heard it gladly. The, the, the message of the Messiah and the promise of the King who would come now in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus moves from explaining Scripture and promoting the glorious promise of the Messiah to telling the people to beware of these teachers who don't understand the Scriptures and reveals their sin, really exposes their sin here. Uh, their sin is exposed, and, and God is really showing why this, the source of why they get things so wrong, why they can't understand the, the Scriptures properly, because the Spirit of God is not at work in them. Um, they are not servants of the Lord, ultimately. And this last act of Jesus' public ministry is to warn the people against listening to people like these. 
These are important reminders here at the end of Jesus' public teaching ministry to beware of people who pretend to be servants of God but are not. Um, The remainder of his instructions in this book will be for his disciples. Um, that That will begin the final instructions in chapter 13, as we said before, the suffering and death of Christ. And so these words serve as a final comment on the scribes and on on the religious leaders who have been uh, plaguing Jesus throughout this gospel. Um, And he warns the people to beware of them, exposes the dangers of hypocrisy, especially hypocrisy in the ministry. Um, We should begin by remembering the divine calling that God has given to all of his people in the world. In verses 30 and 31 of chapter 12, God made it very clear what the most important commandments are to love God wholeheartedly, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Uh, That's the rule that comes to all of God's people. Uh, We do that by seeking to glorify God in all we do and to build up our neighbors in all we do. That is how we live out a life that's pleasing to our God. That's how we show that the love of God is dwelling in our hearts by the Spirit, by showing forth that love to God and to our neighbors. That's important for all of God's people. It's particularly important for the leaders of God's people. Uh, The people he's raised up into positions of leadership are not only to do this, as every member of the church is to do it, but also to model it for God's people. Paul, Paul told Timothy, that's an important part of your ministry, to model what a life like that looks like. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Um, Live that life that shows people how to glorify God and shows people how to build up and edify their neighbors. And that's why Jesus says to the people, beware of the scribes because they are not people to be modeled. They are not people to follow in what they do. They are not God-glorifying in what they do. They are prideful. And they don't seek to serve their neighbors. They prey on them. The scribes are condemned here by Jesus as being prideful and predatory. Jesus says they love the prestige that came with being a scribe. Um, There was a lot of ways that people were honored scribes. One commentator said, Scribes were venerated with unbounded respect and awe. When one passed, people rose respectfully, and they were greeted with titles of utmost respect, rabbi, master, father. Sort of the way you all respond to me, right, when I walk by, Um, right? I thought that, venerated with unbounded respect and awe. Um, I'm not actually asking for that. But people would stop working when when they walked by in the marketplace. They would stand up and acknowledge them. They would greet them. Um, there, there, there were even rules in the society for what kind of work you could be doing that wouldn't require you to stand up when a scribe walked by. Um, so you could be excused if you were really busy with something and not have to stand up and show him respect. And how did they know that a scribe was walking by? Well, because they wore long flowing white robes that broadcast to the world who they were. They wore white because they were too holy to wear colors like the common people. Um, But it broadcasted that's who you were as you walked around. Everyone knew that it was scribe was coming by, and they greeted him with great titles. Um, You could tell him by his long white robes. He got the best seats in church up front facing the congregation. At feasts, they were always at the head table. They pushed the parents down the table. They 
they pushed the older folks down the table. They were the ones that sat in positions of authority. And Jesus says they love it. And what's behind this love of being treated that way? It's that they're more interested in their own glory than they are in God's glory. Uh, They love being honored because self-glorification to them was more important than the glory of the God they served. Um, And Jesus says, beware of them. They are prideful and they are predatory. Um, They are predatory. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Uh, They devour widows' houses. Scribes were forbidden to make money off of their teaching. Uh, One rabbinical teaching said you can't use the Torah like a spade. You can't use it as your tool for making money. And so they were supported by donations. They were supported by God's people. Um, And obviously a lot of people thought it was a privilege to be able to donate to them and to support the work of God in that way. Um, But not only did the scribes take advantage of the resources that they were put at their disposal, they did that even when poor people were giving to them who could not afford to do so. That's Jesus' point in saying they devour widows' houses, right? People who have no other source of support in this world. The scribes eat up the resources that are theirs. And for a pretense, make long prayers. Uh, They speak to God in long prayers that are meant to impress people, but not long prayers that are meant to serve God's people and to raise up the needs of God's people. Their intention really is to advertise to people how holy they are, and to try to drum up more supporters and donors. And Jesus says in that way, they don't use the prayers for the reason God wants prayers offered. They use them as a pretense, uh, to get to, as a marketing tool in a sense, to gain more supporters and more donors. Jesus says, beware of them. They are prideful and they are predatory. And people might not see them for who they are, But Jesus says, God sees them for who they are. I see them for who they are. And God's word reminds us in Job 24 and 5, Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? They might be revered, they might be honored, They might be given money for their support, but God sees them for who they truly are. And God will not fail to repay them what they deserve. Right? Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation because they are not who they ought to be. And this is a warning, I think, to everyone in the church, not just to leaders. It should be a warning especially to leaders Um, but to everyone in the church, that the temptation, as one person put it, to which the church has been exposed in history is the temptation to pious self-glorification, to really just piously glorify ourselves and not seek to glorify God. That's interesting. This person goes on to say, all other threats to the church's stability are entirely secondary. That's an interesting historical claim, isn't it? That the most serious threat to the church is when we become interested in our own glorification and not in God's. We think about all the threats that are around the church, a lot of the threats that we worry about, especially for our children, for our grandchildren. 
Um, what kind of world are they going to get? What kind of church are they going to live in in this world? And we can think of all those external pressures that press down on us. But one of the most serious pressures that can come up is when the church stops being the church. When we stop trying to glorify God in what we do. When we stop trying to edify our brothers and sisters in what we do and serve other ends in the church. Um, that's where the greatest threat comes from. Hal Jones, one of my seminary professors, in his commentary on Philippians 1, said, this is, it has been throughout history internal weaknesses which have contributed more to church's decline than external opposition. And so how do we combat that as God's people? How do we make sure that we're never guilty of pious self-glorification, seeking our glory and our good over that of others? Well, like the same person that pointed out the problem posed the solution. He said, there must go through all the life of the church like one single prayer, the words of Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This has to be what we're about as God's people, glorifying the Lord. And it has to be what we're about as shepherds of God's people, glorifying the Lord and building them up. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. If you're a leader of God's people, if you men in seminary are thinking about being a leader of God's people, um, pray that God would keep you from these sins of self-glorification and preying on your people rather than serving them. Because your condemnation will be the greater if you don't. The Lord is being very clear to us here. Pray for a spirit of humility that God would save us all from a self-glorifying pride. Pray for a love for neighbor that would keep us from preying on God's sheep and never forget that there is a God in heaven who is a righteous judge and who sees what is done and is an avenger who will call wickedness to account. Pray for yourselves, leaders of God's people. God's people, pray for your leaders that we would not be consumed by these kinds of sins. And may we be a people who, with a single eye, look to the glory of God and seek to advance that in the world and seek to glorify God in all we say and all we do and to serve our, min- and to serve our neighbors and build them up. And with this warning, Jesus ends his public ministry. Um, and it may seem a strange thing that he does after ending the public ministry to almost seem like he goes to sit down and people watch in the temple court as people bring their offerings. But what Jesus really wants to do is move on from these false servants to show his disciples what true service to God looks like. And he does that by exalting the sacrifice of this poor widow who comes to bring her offering. And that's where Jesus ends this chapter with sacrifice exalted. Uh, They go to take up their seat and to watch people who are bringing their offerings. Remember, this is a festival time of the year when there are tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem that are normally not there. And they're coming to make their contributions uh, to the temple. And there were offering boxes, receptacles, where people would put in their money and give their offerings 
to the Lord. Um, and so Jesus takes up a seat where he can see people coming to these offering boxes and giving their offerings. He's there with his disciples and they're watching. And Mark tells us that they took particular note of those rich people who were putting in large sums of money. Right? In, in that culture, if the money is all sort of hard currency, uh, you can hear all the money when it rattles into the box. Um, and if you have a lot of money that you're giving and a lot of coins, there's a lot of coins you watch people put in, a lot of money you hear rattling into the box. It probably was very obvious when a rich person was giving their offering. You could see it, take time to put all the money in. You could see it and hear it as it all rattled in. Uh, they said there were kind of trumpet-shaped receptacles that you would put your money in, almost like a toll booth, it sounds like. And so you can imagine, you could hear that rattling down, rattling into the box. And if a rich person was just giving and giving and giving, you could hear that. It would make an impact. It would be noticeable. But Jesus doesn't draw their attention to those folks who are giving a lot of offerings. He draws their attention to one particular person, a poor widow, whose offering would have been easy to miss. It was probably quickly made and didn't make much noise. Wouldn't have made much noise literally. It wouldn't have made much noise, uh, what am I looking for, figuratively. It would have been easy to miss. Because after all, Mark tells us she put in two small copper coins, which he tells his Roman audience was only enough to make a penny which was the smallest coin in Roman currency. That's all she put in. It wouldn't have been remarkable in any way, but Jesus draws their attention to it and says that was the offering that had significance of the offerings that you've seen offered, and why did it have significance? Verse 43, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Um, it's, it's interesting, it strikes you as you read it in Greek because you could woodenly translate what Jesus says there. She put in all of her life. She put in all of her life. Now, all of her livelihood, all she had to live on is what that means. But it strikes you that it could mean she put in all of her life. Um, and I think that it's meant to kind of bear that weight because what Jesus is talking about, the significance of this offering, he's talking about what true sacrificial service to God looks like. Because she gave to God all she had. And Jesus tells us she was extremely poor. That amount of money being all she had was not a lot of money. Right? Now, I know it's bad to do math ever in church, but um, math at this late hour is particularly dangerous in church. Um, but we're told that a denarius was about a day's wage. So if you, you, know, if you made $15 an hour and worked for a day, the comparison of what she puts in to what you would earn in a day is about $1.88. So imagine having a dollar eighty-eight, and that's all you have to live on. And rather than keeping back ninety-four cents for yourself and giving half of it to God, you give everything to God. You only have a dollar eighty-eight, and you give the whole dollar eighty-eight away. Um, what have you given away? You've given away all you have. You've kept nothing back for yourself. You've given it all to God and completely to Him. 
And I was sort of struck by how many commentators would then go on to try to apply this to like how we give offerings and say, you know, we should think about this woman's offering and how she gives offerings. And as someone who was a deacon a long time ago, I thought, I wonder if we would have counseled someone not to give like this because it's dumb uh, to give up everything you have. Is that a good stewardship of your resources? I mean, there's all kinds of tangential ways people split, can split off of this passage. I don't think this has really anything to do with the offering itself. It's the heart out of which this offering was given. Right? This offering was a picture for them of where her heart was before the Lord. Uh, a picture of the heart, the kind of heart, the kind of wholehearted devotion that Jesus had talked about in Mark chapter 8. Think about that, of, of thinking about what she did as giving up all of her life. And then think about what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34 to 36. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This woman showed what God is looking for. Self-denial. A willingness to give up her life for the Lord. I think Calvin's right when he says the chief sacrifice which God requires is self-denial. And that's what she's a picture of. Jesus said, don't be impressed with all the rich people who gave out of their abundance. And in that sense, it didn't cost them their lives to do that. They were giving out of the abundance they already had. And they still had abundance when they went away even though they put a lot into the box. She didn't give out of her abundance. She gave out of her poverty. And she gave everything she had. She gave all she had to live on. She gave her life in that sense. And what did she do in giving her life, giving all she had? She's trusting herself completely to him to care for her. That's what she's doing, is putting herself in God's hands. Denying herself and trusting in him. Jesus wants his disciples to take note of that. Not just because they will be called to do that as his disciples. To deny themselves and to pick up their crosses and follow him. To give up their lives for Jesus and for his sake of his gospel that they might save it. Um, but it's also what Jesus is about to do. He's about to give up all he had to live on. And not just in a financial sense, he's going to give up his life, body and soul on the cross to save sinners. And by giving his life, by losing it in that sense, he's going to save it. He's going to pick it up again. And in giving his life, he's going to save all of those who look to him for their lives and for their hope. This poor widow and her example is given to us as a vivid contrast between the pretend service of the scribes and the true devotion of this woman. Because they had a public veneer of being servants of God, but their hearts were far from him. And God saw their hypocrisy, and they are a reminder to us that God's enemies will always be remembered as those worthy of the Lord's judgment. But here is a woman who gave something that nobody recognized as the gift it was. No one would have thought of that gift as being as big as it was. 
It was a private act of devotion to God that we only know about because Jesus draws our attention to it. But isn't it wonderful to think that how many people would have watched her walk by and give that offering and have thought nothing of it? But Jesus reminds us that he saw. He saw what she gave. And he saw it for what it was. That even if no one else in the world sees the self-denial and service that we are offering to our Lord, our Lord sees it. And he's reminding us here that those who serve him are worthy of his commendation. At the end, all those who honored him, pretended to honor God publicly, when God sees them, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But here, this woman who probably no one understood what she'd done for the Lord, on that day the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, does it really matter who commends us if the Lord doesn't commend us? That's the only, the only one whose opinion matters. If the whole world should turn against us, what does it matter if the Lord says to us, well done, good and faithful servants? That's what we should be about. That's what we should be living for. And we cannot do that in our own strength. We have to have the help of his spirit. So may we earnestly pray that the Lord would help us to live with that kind of wholehearted devotion that seeks no other commendation in this world but the commendation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And might we give him our whole lives, denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following him wholeheartedly that we might glorify him and serve our neighbors. May God give us that grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are warned in this passage with serious warnings, and we have a wonderful example of the devotion that's recognized by our Lord. We pray that we would look to Messiah and to his kingdom for what he gave to save our souls, and that we would seek to glorify him in all we say and do. We thank you, Lord, for making him known to us through his word, and we pray that none of us would hear it and be left unchanged. For those ways in which we've sought our own glory, we pray you would forgive us our sins, that you would create in us a spirit of humility, that we might seek to serve you and your glory alone. We pray that you would help us to never prey on our neighbors or do anything but seek their good and seek to build them up. Where we failed in that, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us and help us Help us, Father, by your Spirit to deny ourselves, to devote ourselves wholeheartedly to you for the glory of your Son, to look to his example of how he was willing to give all and follow him. Help us in this, we pray, that you might be glorified, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.